0: So when people ask me about the the sometimes tension or like the, I don't know, sometimes there's some rift between performance marketers and brand marketers, because some people are very performance oriented, their business is very performance oriented. And they think that that's the end all be all, but often you find that those companies are very churn and burn companies. They just don't have the LTV. They don't have the customer advocacy, the brand advocacy, the buy-in. To your point, I think the role of brand and it has a heavy retention play. For me, brand is about making somebody feel like they're a part of something, not just a consumer of a product. And so Well, I think, is is a company that even before I started has been doing this very well and having a very active working Twitter presence, a very active Slack community. We do a lot of co-sponsoring and going to events in addition to hosting events of our own. And so our whole vision is like, let's freaking make SaaS fun and enjoyable.
1: Welcome to Ad Creative, a new show from Pencil about the unexpected ideas that have changed the game for D2C founders and operators with a focus on actionable takeaways. I'm Chase Moseni. Thanks for joining us. This week, I have the immense pleasure of speaking with Alexa Kilroy, head of brand at Triple Whale. She has a fascinating story that starts with her origins as a teacher and leads her to B2B SaaS. She shares her frameworks for breaking down brands and their customers, A little bit about how wrangling students and owning their education journey helped her create ads. And the things she learned transitioning her career at such an early stage. If you're looking to grow your brand, creative, or learn from someone who is truly indomitable, this episode with Alexa is for you. I hope you enjoy it. Really excited for this episode of Ad Creative. It's going to be episode 10. So Alexa Kilroy, who's head of brand at our favorite place, Triple Whale, um, is going to drop a banger today. So Alexa, thanks for joining us. I really appreciate your time.
0: Heck yeah, I'm happy to be here.
1: Obviously, we're going to get into DTC and growth and performance. I think not enough people know that um, you were a teacher before this. And so I would love to understand a little bit about how someone starts out as a, t- as a teacher? And maybe what gave you the inspiration to go that route before you kind of pivoted? I mean, not to a completely different thing, because performance, all that is edu- customer education, right? Um, and getting to understand like the values of that. But what drove you to becoming a teacher in the first place?
0: Yeah, that's a great question. I was one of those people where I always knew what I wanted to be when I grew up. And the answer was always teacher. So it was like, setting up all the stuffed animals in the living room and teaching them pretend lessons and my mom like invested in it like she helped me like buy workbooks and like sheets i would make little math sheets and all kinds of things and i just loved teaching i don't know why i just always loved it and so i when i was applying to college i literally applied specifically to colleges that had the best education programs i applied directly to their education programs I ended up at Boston College, which has one of the best teaching programs in the country. And the way that it works is starting when you're like 19 years old, you're teaching classrooms of kids. So at first it's supervised and you do it part time. And then as you get older and you're in your junior, senior year, you teach all day a couple times a week. And then by the time you're a senior, you teach literally all day, every day, five days a week. And you take your classes at night and you own the class. like You write the curriculum, you own the class. And I loved it. I loved everything about it. It was all great. Going swimmingly, graduate college, so excited to be a teacher. At the time, I had decided I wanted to get out of Boston and, and move somewhere warm. And so I decided, let's move to Austin. I visited. I liked it. Got a job here. Taught for a year. I was 21. All my coworkers were like 50-something. I had no friends here because I just kind of impulsively moved here. Like I just was in a new place. And I was really burning the candle at both ends. And I was also making like 30 grand. Um, and so I was like, this is not sustainable for a young person. And I had no idea what I was going to do because I had invested so much of my brain power, my education, my money into becoming a teacher. And I had no idea what, how I was going to fix it. I was like, oh no. <laughs> and so there were times when I explored like, okay, higher ed, maybe working at UT at, at University of Texas. And ultimately I was like, I, I can't figure out how to swing it. So I got a foot in the door job at an ed tech company doing like post-sales, basically retention work. So I wasn't CX, I was like an account manager and I helped people go through their data and understand how to action on their data with this ed tech platform. And I really liked working with the customers and educating them about the platform. And I thought I'm gonna be good at marketing. And then I got recruited to join an e-commerce startup shortly thereafter. I was only at that ed tech company for like six months. I started in operations, like doing chargebacks and like packaging returns and doing really boring stuff. I just hustled. I was like, I want to learn media buying. I I like photography and videography. I want to get into creative. Let me try copywriting. I majored, I was an English teacher. I double majored in English. And so I basically just busted my butt to have a really solid e-com job in like a year leading their advertising team and their performance marketing. And then since then, it's been a journey of working in D2C brands up until I'm at Triple L.
1: First of all, thank you for sharing that. Yeah. I think one of the things knowing you but i I would love to understand because you know everyone takes such a circuitous path i don't think i don't think there's one person i know that like was in college and said i want to work in ddc every single person you find is like oh it just kind of i don't know you find yourself there and you're like oh this is this is dope or "I, i enjoy this or i can't get out of this uh like it's just i'm too i'm too deep in have you found some of the concepts and or like frameworks that you learned as a teacher have been really helpful in terms of building teams, building structure for people to work within. And then, you know, just like overall building your network in general, like, has that been helpful and a boon to you?
0: Yeah. I think one of the reasons that I was good at teaching is because I have no shame in the game. Like, I'm a very transparent person. I love communication. Like, people describe me as being a good communicator. And frankly, you have to be great at communication if you're going to teach classrooms of 30 high school kids to care about books written by old dead white guys, as I like to say. And I would even joke with them about it. I'd be like, look, like, this is part of our all of our lives. We all go through this education. Here's how I'm going to help you buy into it and care about it. And so before I even realized I was doing it, I was marketing and I was like doing, I was selling really. Uh, But I think one of the cool things about teaching beyond communicating and having to like stand up and crash at public speaking all day, every day for like 12 hours a day is that you, part of your education curriculum is learning about how the brain works and learns and like emotional responses to things all that kinds of stuff. So it translated really well to consumer psychology, to copywriting, to understanding creative psychology and how different pieces of an ad or different visual elements impact a consumer's brain and intent to purchase. And so I feel so fortunate that it all translated really well. And to your point about management, similarly, again, if you can wrangle like 30, 15-year-olds, you can 100% project manage, you can 100% manage a team Because you're doing all that, like, first of all, you're trying to keep them alive because they're always doing crazy things like throwing pencils across the room. But beyond that, you're also constantly flexing your cognitive muscles to figure out, like, the best strategic way to communicate things, to make them understandable by all 30 of the different personalities and brains in the room and how they absorb learning in different ways, while you're like spending your five minutes here and there working on planning and grading and all these other things. So like a lot of the code switching, a lot of the task shifting, the management of rooms, all that stuff translated so well. I had no idea that it was going to make my career what it was, but it worked out.
1: You've now gone from from two things, right? So you were in D to C and you've moved over to B2B. Have you found that your Ability to educate and or communicate dense information has helped more. Like obviously, you're still early days in the in the triple whale journey, but they're two different things, right? D to C is you're selling, you know, you're selling consumable goods that get like the response rate is a lot faster. And it's not as complicated to understand and unpack what the value proposition is versus you know a b2b product no matter how simple they are to understand there is still a lot more education that goes on in terms of understanding like what the value of the product is kind of at a deep core level have you found one side to be easier to kind of leverage that stuff or is it both sides equally have been like have have benefited from your ability to communicate and teach like that
0: definitely unique challenges in each realm i spent a lot of my d2c time working in health and wellness and supplements and vitamins um, which are a really hard thing to sell because either you're convincing somebody that they need something in the first place, and they're usually reticent to purchase it. They don't understand the long-term investment, right? So, like a vitamin is, you don't know if it's working really. You don't. You might not feel any different. It's so marketing to that was challenging in its own way. B two B is different because now I'm working in the world of attribution, which like first of all, I'm not a technical person, not a product person at all, but. The cool thing is I actually came from the exact opposite side of the table, and I even demoed and like worked with Triple Whale as a client before I came on to the team here. So I really understand the pain points, and I understand how it works from a very like non-product, non-technical brain. The good news is that most of the time when I'm talking to people about what Triple Whale is and does, they really don't know like the code and all the ins and outs of how a pixel works and how attribution really works anyway and so i think the teaching ability of like explaining difficult like high level concepts but the the difficult high level concepts and making them digestible to just about anyone like that definitely applies when i'm trying to explain attribution technology to whomever is probably the person that's making the purchase decision on behalf of their company one thing that's definitely really unique about my particular position is our lead time to purchase for triple whale is actually very short in comparison to a lot of different saas companies because either people are coming in hot, they really need it already, or they came from word of mouth or referral and they believe in it already, or they like, they understand the basic desire and like why they might want it. And so they're just converting faster. And in fact, you can even like sign up and start using Triple Whale on your own without even talking to our team through the website. And so it's a unique SaaS company in the sense that it almost feels, it almost feels D to C. It feels like D to C technology. Um, but the C is just e-commerce entrepreneurs and they are the people that I was a couple months ago. So I understand how their brains work and what they need.
1: Yeah. I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a PLG company, right? So the product essentially allows you to grow. And then I'm sure when you see someone having good experiences, they're like, okay, well, we can expand this person, etc. Do you find then I have one other thing I have put a pin in, in my mind that I want to come back to a little bit. Do you find that essentially if, you're a PLG company, and it's a lot easier because of, you know, word of mouth, and or they're coming in with the need. So they close, like you said, like time to close is much faster. Do you find then that you are thinking about the job of brand is all the time in between, like from the time that they have bought the product to the time when their monthly renewal happens? Yes, they're going to use the product on a daily basis. But there's also the job of like, keeping yourself top of mind so that they're excited about you. Do you find that that is the job of brand? It's almost like the retention driver besides the product. So if the product sits by itself, you guys are sitting on top making sure people think Triple Whale is like the dopest company out there.
0: Yeah. So when people ask me about the the sometimes tension or like the I don't know, sometimes there's some there's some rift between performance marketers and brand marketers because Some people are very performance-oriented. Their business is very performance-oriented, and I think that that's the end-all, be-all. But often you find that those companies are very churn-and-burn companies. They just don't have the LTV. They don't have the customer advocacy, the brand advocacy, the buy-in. And so to your point, I think the role of brand, uh, it has a heavy retention play, For me, brand is about making somebody feel like they're a part of something, not just a consumer of a product. And so Triple Well, I think, is is a company that even before I started has been doing this very well and having a very active organic Twitter presence, a very active Slack community. We do a lot of co-sponsoring and going to events in addition to hosting events of our own. And so our whole vision is like, let's freaking make SaaS fun and enjoyable and like, instead of paying you know, thousands of dollars for some sort of mastermind group where you get to interact with people that relate to your life and your situation, like you're already paying for this thing. We care about all of you and we want to help you grow and learn. Like let's let you have that as a part of being a triple well customer. And so our brand is built around these pillars of content, community, and education. We like really live by that and live by this ethos of like trying to help entrepreneurs grow and scale. And so a lot of our brand driven initiatives are. I would say things that are very low in the funnel if they're pre-purchase or they're things that like make people passionate about just having more than just having a tab open on their computer that makes their life easier.
1: I love that, like making it more passionate than just having a tab open on their computer. I think that's how many products do we use on a daily basis that are just like, it's purely function over form completely. And I mean, I can, I, can, I can speak to this. A few months ago, we got challenged by a young man um, about kind of how we were doing our marketing. And he's like, dude, you're not on Twitter. Go hang out on Twitter. You'll figure out what's going on. Your product needs to be out. More people need to know about it. And kind of the first group of people who kept, or the first brand that kept popping up over and over and over again was Triple And You start diving deeper and then listening to some of the stuff Rava said and seeing some of the, the teammates that were over there. You're like, oh, they just make it like you just want to hang like irrespective of the product itself, which makes it easier for someone to say, oh, well, I need this product now. I want to go hang out with my friends. And so I think that's a really important thing. And I think all brands should do this, by the way. A lot of DDC brands take themselves way too seriously. Yeah. And SaaS companies, all all of this, right? Like SaaS companies do an incredible job of education, but a lot of them take themselves way too seriously. DDC brands do a great job of art, but they take themselves too seriously. And so like kind of the big lesson here is let's just have fun. We're all human beings. Everyone just wants to have a human experience with people. So I think that's, um, I really love that you guys are focused on that. One thing you said earlier about your initial education, studying education was about understanding psychology. And like Sarah Levenger talks about this a lot. Uh, Kate Bauer, same thing. I spoke with Carl, uh, Weisha of, um, of accelerated a while back and he was talking about psychology. And I still think it's funny because it feels like it's still like a bit uh, nation for people to understand that like psychology is kind of the core of everything that we do. So you just talked about how you're thinking about engaging with customers and the psychology that you want them to have around your product. Have you found that That has been, I don't want to say superpower, but like a a nice part of the Swiss army, the Alexis Swiss army knife to be able to understand customers kind of across industries, right? Because you talked about kind of ed tech supplements and now B2B SaaS for attribution, like people are the through line of that. There's no through line in terms of product. Um, So have you found that uh, psychology has been really helpful for you? And then what would you suggest people study when they are looking into kind of their initial foray into psychology?
0: Well, I, you know, I studied all the textbooks, right? Because I was in school for it and it wasn't for consumer psychology. And frankly, I don't know how they cover consumer psychology or if they do in in undergraduate marketing or MBA programs, I would assume that they do in some capacity. So yeah, I do think it is like the thing that makes, I don't know, makes me a good fit for this career, I guess. I don't want to say like makes me good at my job because I'm not trying to toot my own horn, but like, I think that it is the thing. So when I first... Was getting into like performance marketing. Um, I read this book called Cash Fertising. Most people have heard of it. I was seeing on Twitter the other day one of my friends, Connor Martin, who has a lot of different businesses. Uh, he's based in Ireland, but he bought copies of the book for his whole team. And I think it's like the most simplified consumer psychology book, regardless of your B2B, regardless of your D2C. It's the most simplified consumer psychology explanation. It's like a skinny book and it's not a big book, it's a skinny book. And I want to say it's like less than 200 pages, and if you read that book, a lot of things start to make sense. (laughs) But basically, the it's synthesized into like this concept of the Life Force Eight, in which you know there are these eight core principles that trigger someone to want something, and it satisfies some sort of core need for them. Um, And so it's like you know they want shelter, they want physical health, they want you know longevity, like they want to live a long time. Um, They want protection of their loved ones. And so that was like the biggest framework that helped me first start thinking about when I work with a new product, work with a new company, when I was consulting, when I even started Triple Whale, I was like, okay, what is the thing that this actual product is giving you? And like, how can I then, obviously you have a business objective, you have a business impact, but like, how can I connect this core innate desire in you to a broader scope messaging piece that you will understand And you won't feel like I'm attacking your desire for a need for shelter or something, but I've kind of sneakily gotten that into your brain while, you know, still reaching you in in the way that you want to be reached. And so I think if you haven't read cat advertising, even if you read nothing else, Google the Life Force Aid and look it up, Uh, it really unlocks a lot of understanding. And kind of the way that then I tactically use that to go in and, and make decisions is every time I started a new company... Even if I'm consulting, I spend like the first couple of weeks just doing customer interviews and I do them with, I do them with crazy advocates, like long-term customers. I do them with people who are relatively new. If it's a DDC product, they purchased once are they, are they recently, or they purchased a couple of times recently. And then I also talk to the people who churned. So they purchased once and never came back if they're willing to talk to me or they purchased and left a really negative review. And my goal is to really understand like, okay, what inside of you triggered the purchase? And then what triggered the extension of the purchase or lack thereof? And many people I've found when they do customer interviews, they have this list of questions and it's like, okay, where did you hear about us? Write it down. Why did you buy it? Write it down. And nine times out of 10, those answers are not the real answers. When you get the real answer, you'll know, because it's absurdly specific. And so like to give context, I had I remember doing a customer interview for this vitamin company that I was working for. I was talking to someone and she told me she purchased the vitamins from a Facebook ad because she wanted to feel healthier. And I was like, cool, same. Why did you want to feel healthier? And I just kept going deeper and deeper and deeper until eventually she told me like, I have XYZ condition. I just finished XYZ treatment. All my vitamins and nutrients are depleted. My diet's all bonked up. Like I need something to supplement me because I'm freaked out about my health. And it was like, okay, so you were freaked out about your health. You just didn't want it. You didn't just want to be healthier. And so that's where it's like, okay, I was concerned about my survival, my longevity. It clicks back. And so even with Triple Whale, like, yeah, people want an attribution solution, but why do they want it? Because I don't know, maybe they want to get rich with their econ business, or maybe they want to be able to pay their employees a better wage and they need to make more money to do that. And so being able to really dig into people's brains and figure out what they're core actual real goal is for purchasing something. And then thinking about like, okay, now how do I, how do I put this in different pieces of the funnel in a non-creepy way (laughs) to, to make people connect, you know?
1: Yeah. hundred percent. I think what, what's, um, interesting that you just mentioned was talking about customer interviews and it's something that people know they should do, but people don't like to do. And I wonder why, like, do you have a hypothesis on why people don't like to do it? Because what you just said is both incredibly impactful and relatively easy to action because you have all of the consumer data, so you can just go and find the people. I mean, you know, I talk to people every day and very underused. So why do you think that is? I have my own, but I don't want to help you form your opinion.
0: I mean... We as humans are like inherently defensive, particularly if a brand or a product is our baby. And so we always want to hear positive things. And sometimes we're scared of hearing the negative things. We're also incredibly protective of our time, particularly on calls. And if you already are on a lot of calls, you know, like having to add on a bunch of customer interviews to your already busy week, you might not understand the value you're going to get from it. And so having to book those and giving, like giving up that time seems high friction for some people. And then I also think like, it, <laughs> unfortunately, there's a lot of rejection involved, right? You shoot your shot, like you email however many people and then only a, a small fraction respond. And so that's part of, you know, people projecting their time, not wanting to waste their time. But there's also, you know, there's something like unsaid about, you know, I reached out to all these customers and nobody wanted to talk to me. What does that mean about me and my product and my business? and that stuff can totally weigh on you if you're really protective of your product and your business and so i think people avoid it for that reason or they just don't know how to get the most out of it and i think like truly there isn't a, a perfect framework for getting the most out of customer interviews i just describe it as like act like you know you're a 5-year-old and you just keep asking why until you feel like a jerk cuz you've asked why too many times or you've reached the point where at the level of detail you've gotten the answer you need but they don't, they don't need to be that long. It can be 15 minutes. It can be 30 minutes of your time. It can be 20 minutes of your time. You don't have to block everything in 15 minute increments, but you know what I mean? Like it's so worth it. It's so worth it.
1: Well, we just first figured out what, uh, Alexa's next course is going to be. It's going to be called user interviews, yeah. colon Y. Um, it's five <laughs> minutes long. She's going to give you that framework. It's ninety-nine You're going to see it on, on Maven really, really soon. Love it. And I'll have an affiliate link. Um, so just be ready, everybody. <laughs> I think it's it's really important to remember a few things you just said there. One, doesn't have to be long and arduous. The mm-hmm. goal is just to understand the customer and make them feel heard and seen. And don't be so precious about your shit because if you're making a product, it's meant for people. But if you don't want to interact with people, you shouldn't be making a product. Like go write... Go write poetry for yourself or make paintings. Like don't make consumable SaaS products or D2C products that are meant to be consumed by tens of thousands, if not millions of people, if you're not willing to have conversations with them and hear the hard truths, right? Because it's the same thing as being in a relationship with a significant other. If you're not willing to have the hard conversations, like what the hell is the point of the entire thing? Yeah. Thing with friendships, anything. You're in a relationship with a customer because they have exchanged their hard-earned capital for you for a good or service that is meant to enrich their lives. And so if you're not willing to take 15 minutes of your time to understand why it did do that or didn't do that, and you usually find more from the didn't than the did, you're doing it wrong. Like I hate to be so brutal about it, but the fact that Alexa says every place I go, I do that and I have it on a rolling schedule means she wants to make it better so that customers are happier because it makes their lives better. The beneficiary of that is all the rest of the customers because the product, say Triple S product gets better. And the team at Triple Whale because they make more money at the end of the day. Now, that's, that's the goal of all, all of capitalism. But at the end of the day, we're trying to just help people have easier time with life. Yeah, I wanted to kind of hammer that home because we don't talk about user interviews enough in this space and how impactful it can be. It feels like it's much more of a SaaS thing. Like SaaS people go do it a lot. When you're doing product and, and all of that stuff, we do it continuously. So anyway, please definitely do that. Thank you for bringing that up. What was, you talked about the kind of eight things in, um, cash advertising. What was the thing that kind of over the course of your first few weeks of interviewing came up at the new position at triple that like really struck you and said, okay, this is something I want to dive deep on.
0: I think some of the core, like I'll speak more to the actual like use case of the customer. So I think some of the core things that I found that were really powerful. One of them was the, like, I want to be able to pay my team more so that I have retention for like these killers that I have on my team and I need to make more money in order to pay them more. Like I have people that have been, you know, going through the past year with me that deserve uh, to be rewarded for their work and their hustle. And I need to make more money in order to do that. So I think that was one really powerful one. Another really powerful one that I found is we have agency partnerships and Uh, One of the most powerful things I found is these agencies are really intrinsically motivated, even if they have to pay for it themselves, to use Triple Whale because they want to provide a better client experience. And so um, for those of you listening that work in agencies or have worked with an agency, as you may or may not know, when iOS 14.5 rolled out and all of these advertisers were impacted by the privacy changes, like, even the most expert media buyers were impacted, right? We were all figuring it out at the same time. We were all suffering through the same challenges. And there was this consumer sentiment that like, oh, I'm working with an agency. They're experts. They should be able to figure it out faster. They should be able to deal with the problem faster and get me back up to speed faster. And they were on the same wavelength as all of us. Um, Even if they had like a Facebook rep close in their pocket, because frankly, some of the Facebook reps were like, I don't even know what to tell you right now. And so- there was a huge period of like agency churn where people lost faith in their agencies because they lost faith in their data. They felt like they were burning cash. And so we're seeing the resurgence of a lot of these agencies now who are growing and scaling back up again. They're hiring again. Um, they're you know providing better service to their clients again. And it's because they found an attribution solution and they have that transparency to their clients. But sometimes I think that there's this negative sentiment in working with agencies where it's like, oh, they just want to take my money and spend it or whatever. Reality is like the people that work at agencies work really freaking hard. And they also have to code shift, like code switch all day between different brands, different accounts. And they want you to have a good experience. They want you to keep working with them. And so when they have something like triple well, where they can say like, I promise you, I'm not wasting your money. Here's the real data that you have. In your pocket that I don't control. Like it's, you know, you can see it through this app for your own login. That's been really helpful for a lot of agencies in growing their business and being able to bring their team members back and being able to acquire new clients. And so I think that that has been a really powerful thing. And then the, the really core interesting thing that I think about Triple Whale, and not many people know this, is that two of our co-founders created the original version of Triple Whale, which this was pre-IOS 14.5, pre-attribution add-on that we have. But they created Triple Whale because so many media buyers and performance marketers are effectively chained to their laptop, especially before the privacy policy changes. People were like day, basically day trading with their ad spend fluctuating their campaign budgets or their ad set budgets. And so that meant all weekend you had your lot, la- You were still checking things in the morning, checking things in the afternoon, checking things at night. And so when they built Triple Whale, they were like, it sucks that you have to be changed to your laptop all the time. And so one of the first things that they did was they built the dashboard to be mobile first so that you can have it on your phone wherever you're going in case you are that type of person that needs to be on top of it and know if anything's in the red. But then two, you know, the way that the data is presented, like other people on your team can cross check, look for you. You don't have to pay per seat. So like people can look and get what they need. And so they were really trying to solve for this problem where like they were locked to their computers, spending so much time doing manual calculations and spreadsheet work. And so there's something really interesting there that connects to that, like care and protection of loved ones or like quality time with your loved ones where, you know, it's really hard to have a full life as a performance marketer. And I, I know because I've been there. And so having something in your pocket that allows you to kind of step back and take a break and spend some time with friends and family and, and not be stressed at happy hour, not be stressed at dinner with your parents, you know, that's really powerful. And I think that's been a huge thing for triple oil as well.
1: People don't talk about that enough, which is performance doesn't turn off because the dollars don't stop spending. Yeah. I know how many times I've woken up to text like, what the fuck is this? Why is this happening? I'm, I'm sure you've had this on like a Sunday morning. The first thing you do is go and look at dashboards rather than like, hey, I'm gonna have a coffee. I'm gonna read the book. I'm gonna like yeah. chill like a normal, like a, what you would want to do on a Sunday to reset yourself to go crush it during the week. First thing you go do is look at dashboards and say, like, did this get fucked up overnight, or did I sell? And your entire worth is kind of locked up in did it sell or did it not? Yes. Yeah, and it's um, it's a really. I mean, first of all, I, I really love that kind of um, that being at the core of the the entire mission, and you can kind of feel that in general, both by the company being fun, predicated on like education and community, um, so people feel connected, and then like you said, allowing yourself to be connected without having to be locked in. It's like essentially bottling up this whole being able to be a digital nomad. Like you can kind of be a performance nomad within your own city rather than needing to kind of have your laptop in a hotspot. Done that before, by the way, as well, like, okay, I have this in my car just so that if I need to check something like really dumb. I think that's, um, that's really important to recognize. It really helps me kind of move to the next question. So between, you know, growth, performance, and now brand, which I don't think is actually that much different, to be completely honest with you. But what since you transitioned from teaching has been hard that you didn't expect to be hard?
0: Teaching is a lot of emotional labor. So, you know, kids come to you with lots of needs and problems. And you know, this is going on at my house, or I didn't get my homework done because of this or whatever. There's no more uh, emotional labor. But I think partially because of COVID and work from home. And then partially just because I consistently work at like very fast growing, high performing companies. I am one, I'm a yes person. It's like my tragic flaw. And so I am very prone to like getting burned out, like burning the candle too much. And so like, today is Thursday. This past weekend was 4th of July long weekend. And like, I admit, I literally worked every single day. I didn't do anything for 4th of July because we have a big event coming up and I had a lot of prep to do for it and whatever. And I'm very type A and I want everything to be done very well. Like I can't half-ass anything. Everything needs to be 110%. That's just how my brain works. I was always the kid that needed an A plus instead of an A. And so when there's need and other people... Are too busy to cover it or can't handle it or it'll be easier if I do it, whatever. Like I will jump in and do it. And and that is a different kind of like labor and stress and exhaustion than I felt when I was teaching. And I also, when I was a teacher, I definitely didn't like, I felt like when I was a teacher, I, I certainly had my own identity. Like there was me and then there was like teaching. And I think now that I'm in this space that I'm currently in, like my career is so much more of who I am. And I have to challenge myself to like remember that I'm a person outside of my job and like my job performance. I think that stuff kind of has started to blend together and that's a unique challenge that I found. In terms of like tactical day-to-day, it's interesting. I really don't feel, I mean, I obviously had to learn a lot of things at the beginning. I had to learn how to be a performance marketer and media buy and all those sorts of things. And I'm actually really a risk averse person. Like you'll never catch me skydiving. So taking other people's money and spending it was really stressful for me for a long time. But other than that, like, I actually feel like it was okay. Like everything went pretty well. It's more so, I think there's a lot of personal growth that has come with working in this space that, frankly, I don't, I still don't even dedicate enough time to and like my self care and giving my self work life balance, even though it's such a cliche phrase. And that's just, a, that's definitely hit me in a different way.
1: So, two things there that decoupling your personal self worth from your business self worth is. I think going to be one of the unique things of the next 10 years, two reasons. First, because it's really important. Second, because I see it like mental health being something that um, sounds crazy. I sound like an old fogey, but like the younger generation will champion uh, because it's,
0: mm-hmm. I, agree.
1: I find every generation is more dedicated and this is not a bad thing. So let me not say I'm not denigrating anybody, but it's much more dedicated to taking care of themselves and the generation before it. And it's because every generation gets incrementally better. And so if you say like, okay, well, Gen X is better than the boomers or whoever was for before Gen X. And then, you know, the millennials are better than Gen X and Gen Y and, you know, so on and so forth. As it, as everything trickles down, it will become something where there's going to be like business centered mental health companies. So you have like, you know, you have all the apps, we all have Headspace, Calm, all of that stuff. But it's like a much more broad consumer focus than they have B2B people that are selling to businesses, but like actually centered on, hey, you are your own person outside of this, because it's really hard. That is, I think, Mm -hmm. when you want to be a high performer, there's almost nothing else. And so that work life balance thing you brought up we all read books about people who don't believe in that at all. There's no book where you read about a a great person and there's work-life balance. And so like people are kind of speaking out of both sides of their mouth, work-life balance, but also be like Bezos. There was no work-life balance with Bezos until he became executive chairman 30 years into Amazon and he's worth $200 billion. Um, Same thing, Kobe, same thing, every person that we read about or, or venerate. And so It's really, it's really tough. I guess what I think is on this, and I would love, love to hear your feedback on it is you have to be okay with knowing that if you are dedicated to being the best at something, things are going to slip and it's okay. It's more just keeping them in check so that they don't slip 10 times. They slip four times. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, I have two kids, I have a wife, you have fiance, you have a wedding coming up. There's only so many times you can let those things slip before it's like, dude, do you care more about that or this? And it's just understanding that the balances will tip and some days work is going to be more important, some days family and and life is going to be more important and just figuring out what you feel relatively comfortable with, but that pressure is a frankly to me is a good thing because it's the whole old adage pre- diamonds are formed under pressure. So I think it's um I think the, the, the world we live in is a little hypocritical telling us have work-life balance, but also be a boss. But I'm curious what you think about that and how you've kind of right-sized it in your mind.
0: Two thoughts. One, to your point about diamonds under pressure, I couldn't agree more. And a lot, a lot of people don't know that I'm 25 years old and I'm in my current role. And I was a teacher a couple of years ago. So like, If that gives you any context on what my life has been like the past couple of years, it has been working weekends. There were times where I was working one day, one job during the day, and then full-time consulting for like another company in my night hours. Like there's been a lot of grind that got me to this point. And frankly, I'm still like, I don't think I'm done growing. I know I'm not done growing and God, I would love to know, you know, I had this crazy thing happen today where I ended up getting quoted a business insider article that was released today and it like blew my mind. Yeah. Which I was like, so excited about. And I called my mom of all people this morning to be like, mom, I can't believe this happened. And she was like, how are you taking this? And I was like, if you had told me a year ago, six months ago, this would have happened. I wouldn't have believed you. But the reality is like, I think about all the hours and all the energy and all the effort that I put in between now and then to not only work on my job, but also work on myself and read and learn and learn more about the industry and the space. And I'm like, no, like that does make sense. Like I freaking work hard. <laughs> so there's that. The other thing that I, I really struggle with with this whole like work-life balance, well, the lot thing is, I think a lot of us were ingrained because of prior generations with this like life path. And the life path is that you work really hard until you're like 60 and then you get to retire and chill okay, that makes sense. But like, we're on the earth for how long? Like 80, if you're lucky, maybe 90, if you're like super healthy. So you're telling me, you want me to spend more than half my life, like grinding basically, like not having a life so that I can get a little bit at the end as a return. Like the the ROAS, the ROI there sucks. It really sucks. And so like, That is just such a fallacy. And also like who wants to be doing the things that they want to do their whole life when they're like old and their joints hurt? Like you're not going to go climb Mount Everest when you're 60. So like if you need to go do that now, go do that now. And so like one of my hills to die on is that when people have gaps in their resume, I almost don't even notice them. I honestly don't even look at like the years in which people worked on places, because I'm finding that a lot of people are taking time to try and build their own business. They're taking some time to consult so they can digital nomad, do whatever. And I'm so pro that you're 28 years old. You're young, you're healthy. You don't have kids. You don't have a mortgage. You don't have a house yet. Freaking go live in Bali and work remote. Like by all means, if you're single, even better, like you have literally nothing to tie you down. And so that's like one of my biggest proponents. I wish I could like Live it myself right now. I'm not really living it myself right now, but I aspire to live it myself soon. Um, And I'm definitely doing a lot of traveling soon. So I'm excited for that. But don't wait till you're old and and gray to live your best life.
1: It's funny you mentioned that. So um, my wife and I had like kids two years, two and a half years apart. And every year from when I graduated grad school, so 2014 to 2019, we went for two and a half to three weeks um, to Europe. And everyone's like, why are you going so long? Why are you doing this? You're spending so much money. Okay. But now we look back and we're like, fuck, man. Can you imagine? Like, Because your, your life irrevocably changes, right? Same thing. You get married, irrevocably changes. You move. All, all of these things, um, these big life events. We look back and we're like, man, why didn't we go longer? Why didn't we do more? Not why did we do that? It's more of we actually shortchanged ourselves because you don't get the time back. Yeah. By the way, it's the same thing with taking a risk for a business. Like if you want to start a business, this is not me being Gary V hustle culture, do everything. It's if you have something that you're passionate about and you feel that there is a need in the market and you can solve it in a unique way that will drive value for people. Like you should do it. Just know that it's, it's not going to be this three, four years later that you're seeing with other people who are posting about being in Dubai and driving Ferraris, you're going to be shoveling shit. And that's, fine, you just have to go in knowing that. But if you're young and want to do it, you should you should absolutely do it. If you're older, and you want to do it, you should absolutely do it. Like what you said, the fallacy of when I'm 60, I'm going to go do everything I want. I know a lot of people who are 60. Now, my dad's generation, Jessica's uh, parents generation, they're not doing what they want. They kind of like have been locked into this is my this is my life. And they don't go and enjoy themselves. They either work more or they kind of just sit around and don't do shit. So we have to like, uh, you know, literally uh, dead poet society, carpe diem and seize the day. Um, So I I, I really, I really appreciate that. I think it's, um, we don't think about it enough. Like we talk about it, but we don't actually action on it enough. So this is interesting kind of counterpoint to this. What keeps you going? Because we just talked about how dedicated you are to getting things done type a those things there are peaks and valleys with that stuff right you're feeling good you have energy it's it's good but then maybe something happens or you're not feeling your best how does it keep you going is it something predicated on an internal thing is it customers how do you kind of put yourself in the right place to keep going even when the times are tough
0: yeah, I mean, I think I was just born with like a lot of intrinsic motivation to succeed. And so contextual example to your prior point about taking risks, like the first e-com company that I worked at uh, right around a couple months months after COVID hit, they like laid off myself and a bunch of other people. And I was like, this is literally gonna be the worst job market. I am deeply screwed. I've done like a year and a half maybe in e-com and like, how am I gonna find a new job? And it's a horrible time, of blah, blah, blah. blah. I got laid off on a Tuesday and I had job offers by Friday. And it was just because I put the time in to like reach out to people. And, you know, like I didn't just send in my resume. Like I sent them a whole, like, I looked at your website, here's some thoughts that I have. And here's what I would try and blah, blah, blah. Like just investing in myself and investing in my growth and investing in my future. So I think that's always been like a core part of me. I think Right now, in my current position, there are th- three things that are true that keep me alive. One, I go to F45. It's high-intensity workouts. They alternate cardio and strength days. They literally beat you <laughs> with this workout for 45 minutes. But, like, it is the hardest thing. And then once you're done, you just lie on the ground. And you're like, cool, I, I did that. I can do other stuff. Like, I'm strong and powerful, and I I got it. So highly recommend F45, particularly if you're high, strong, it's really good for that type of people to do like hit workouts. Two, there are days in my life, there are weekends in my life in which I get home from work on a Friday. I will go to sleep. I will wake up. I'll do like two things on Saturday and then I'll go back to sleep and I'll literally just like recharge, like full self-induced coma. And then Sunday I'll wake up and I'll be a person and enjoy my weekend. And sometimes that bums me out because I feel like I miss like some of my fun time, but the reality is like. When your body needs it, you got to listen to it. And so sometimes people are like, you haven't responded to my text in two days. And I'm like, I truly just slept for 48 hours (laughs) or whatever. And so listen to your body. Um, And then the third thing, and I'm very fortunate. So ironically, like, even though I work in marketing and brand and all these things, like I literally don't care about pop culture at all. I was on a call with somebody the other day and they were like, do you know Ryan Reynolds? And I said, not personally. And that was not what they were asking. They were just asking, do you know who he is? (laughs) Like, that's how like out of it I was, but I just don't care. Like about like Kim Kardashian could call me tomorrow. I don't care. But what I do care about is when I meet really cool people like yourself, Chase, who I really respect. And I really admire really cool brand owners of brands that I have a big fat crush on. There's a brand that's a client of ours that I have just been obsessed with their packaging, their branding, their ads their everything for years And they emailed me and we're like, Hey, we would love to talk to you. Like we love triple whale. And I get to do an hour with this like incredible female founder that I have like the biggest entrepreneurial crush on. And it's like, those things in my week are like, Holy shit. I'm so fortunate. Like I get to talk to this person that I've admired for so long. Like this is my, I don't know, like this is my pinnacle of getting to pick people's brains. And so those things, like the fact that that's part of my job, the fact that I get to talk to so many cool brands, I was talking to Matt Schroeder, who has owned and operated Shelly Cove for seven years, which is a women's t-shirt company. Um, Seven years ago, I was in high school, maybe? No. Was I in high school? Yeah. Or no, I was in college. I don't know. But I remember seeing their-
1: Freshman college. Yeah.
0: Yeah. So I I remember seeing their OG Instagram ads for these shirts, like when they first started running Instagram ads. And I finally got to sit down with him for an hour yesterday and talk to him. And it was like the great, it was like mind blowing for me. Like they just screen print shirts with turtles on them. Nothing like, nothing about the product is crazy, but because they've been in my ecosystem and in my brain for so long and I've watched them like grow and scale and all these things. I just, I had tremendous respect and, and it was just so cool to talk to him. And so like, those are the things that at the end of the day, I'm like, wow, I'm
1: so fortunate. I think for everyone who's listening to this, get you a job. I know that's not proper English. Find you a job Mm. that fills you, fills up your bucket that much. That's really the goal, right? So like I get to talk to amazing people like you, kind of, like you said, go and just find cool shit to talk about, about stuff that I would do by myself, let alone like this is time I'm paid for. Um, And so... Yeah, like you you sit and you pinch yourself. My wife, uh, I remember when she switched jobs recently. She's like, I want to feel like I want to sound like you sound every day. She's like, You wake up and you seem like you're gonna run through a wall. She's like, now that's partially your personality. (laughs) That's partially your personality. And second, that you're filled up by, by the work. But her her saying is uh you wake up like with lightning bolts shooting out of your ass. And so again, Alexa and I are like this is not hyperbole. I know how much you love this gig and these people and and what you're doing. Um, and I I feel very similarly about where, where I'm at. So yeah, find you a job like that where, okay. So we're going to transition to anti-rapid fire. Where do you get your best ideas?
0: Oh boy. I mean, I'm a very data driven person. So like I will sit and look through spreadsheets and come up with insights and then I will absorb a bunch of creative things out in the universe, be it, Twitter, be it ads, be it whatever. And then I'll be like, okay, I have this data and I have all these other kind of creative inspirations. How do I combine them together? So I think that's a big thing. Some of it is really to your point, like it's just sitting on the phone and talking through things with people. So just having people in this space that I can be like, okay, I have this thing. I have like a really half-baked idea. It's like 50% of the way there. Can you help me think about how I can really get it all the way to hundred percent? And so that's one of the reasons I actually love working out of the office again is because I can just sit down with my team members and be like, I have this bizarre creative idea. How can I make it a thing? I'm definitely a shower thinker. And then I also, it's been a very long time since I've listened to music in the car. I listen to podcasts every day. And so I'm just constantly listening to other business owners, founders, operators, people in leadership and listening to their stories and saying like, okay, cool. How can I, it worked for them. How can I try and apply that? Or will it work for me? And so, a lot of my inspiration comes from there
1: too. Yeah, that's great. It's fu- it's funny listening. I've done it. I do it maybe like every fourth time I get in the car, where I just say like, "Okay, I'm going to listen to music." The problem is, it's so rare now that I I listen to stuff that I already know, not try to source new music. So I'm listening to like all this OG shit that I would uh, that I already know all the lyrics to. Um, so yeah, that's when uh, music comes on. Now I'm like, what the fuck is this terrible? Music <laughs> that people listen to. Um, I literally sound like an old man yelling at the sky, that uh that Simpson's uh gif. I love that. Well, I love that answer. Where um what's the best piece of advice you've ever received?
0: Well, I wish I listened to my dad when he told me that I was gonna go into marketing one day when I was like 18. Um, I totally thought he was wrong. I thought it was shenanigans, he was right. This is kind of, a, I don't know if this is the best piece of advice I've ever received, but I will say, I remember having a conversation with my mom when I was young, uh, because I was like just a super nerd. And also I knew I wanted to be a teacher. Uh, I was probably like teacher's pet kid. Like I got bullied a lot. I just admittedly got bullied a lot. I was like the AP student. I had weird glasses. My weight fluctuated frequently. There was frizzy hair. It was never, nothing really worked in my favor, but I kept in my own corner and did my own thing. And my mom just sat me down one day. I remember this was in high school and a bunch of people whose numbers I didn't have started a group chat and everyone was just saying mean things about me and put me in the group chat. And I was just torn up about it, obviously, because you're like a fragile young female going through like your first menstruation or whatever, like my hormones are all off. And I was just like so torn up. And my mom was like, literally who gives a shit. She looked at me and she was like, who gives a shit? Like, yeah, you have to see all these people one day, one day you're going to graduate. You're never going to have to see them again. One true Two, she was like, there will come a time in your life when those people who are jerks will remain jerks and they will not get very far in life. Um, but if you are authentic and true to yourself, which is a very cool, awesome person, they just don't see it right now, then it'll work out in your favor. And I really internalized that and it worked in college. Like I met some of my best friends, like lifelong friends, people in my wedding in college from just being totally authentic with them. I remember one day I I love peanut butter. I just sat outside of my dorm room eating peanut butter out of the jar. And I met a girl that became one of my good friends. And I was like, I'm trying the authenticity model. And I bought in. And then it's been true all through my career. Like I just can't work in environments where I can't be my full self with people. So that means like if I slip a bad word out, If I just need to like rage for a little bit and vent to somebody, or if I just want to get super excited and like run around and dance and be goofy, like I need to have that. I need to be that kind of person. And as I've grown, I think one, I I notice a lot of people in our space are very committed to that level of transparency and authenticity and like admitting failures and all that kinds of stuff. But two, like people will actually come up to me and be like, you're really weird. I love it. (laughs) And I'm just like, Awesome. Like, that's just who I am. And I'm just not, it's too much effort for me to try and be anything else other than who I am. So I'm like wearing whale earrings today because, like, I love triple whale and I bought whale earrings and I'm wearing blue. And you know what I mean? Like, they're just things about me that are, are a little eccentric or whatever. And, like, if you don't like it, sucks. Like, sorry, I'll still find a way to work with you and, and get along with you. And we'll be fine. We'll have a professional relationship. But the best friends that I've ever made in my life are the people that I never tried to be anything other than just me around and I just don't see the value in wasting your energy and like putting on your your customer service face or whatever like to be a person out in the universe if you don't need to
1: I'm pausing because it's very important the idea of not the idea the act of being authentic and it's not actually about anyone else it's about yourself yeah first of all sorry curse words fuck those people uh, <laughs> Because that's, kids are kids are fucking brutal man yeah by the way having been a schmuck uh, as a younger person and realizing the kind of damage that it could do now thinking back like what's the point of this stuff like w- we're all trying to just have a human experience and find joy um so first off second thing good on your mom that's like the best advice you could possibly you yes. could possibly give somebody and i like, just in our little D2C echo chamber, like, the more we can do that and not everything be about 77 Roas, like, life will be very good because that's the whole point of this podcast, right? This shit is hard. It comes from a much different place than we think it does in terms of everyone's stories. I mean, the through line of this podcast is that everyone's story is different, but everyone's trying to go to the same place, which is just live a good life and crush. And the fact that we can all do it together, like those three, con- those three kind of pillars live in everyone's story, but everyone comes from a completely different place. Like I said, I don't think anyone goes to school and says, "I want to be in DDC." Maybe they say marketing, maybe they say business, but like this little corner of the universe is filled with just very, very circuitous paths. So I think what your mom said is um, is dead is dead on. Just be authentic to yourself, and you will attract the tribe. Mm-hmm. Last one or actually second to last, what skill do you think has served you best in life?
0: Being good at public speaking. Cause the reality is like, if you get nervous talking to people, it makes your life really hard. It makes every call that you have to do really hard. It makes going to networking events and meeting cool people really hard. It makes making friends really hard, makes interviewing really hard. Like if you aren't the type of person where you can just get on a call and just start jamming or walk into a room and even if you're a little uncomfortable, just start jamming with people, like do what you got to do to work on it because I've never, I don't know why, I've just never been afraid of public speaking. Actually, I think it's because when I was a kid, my parents maybe do piano and I had to start like playing on stages and do recitals and stuff in front of people. And obviously that's not very high pressure, but once you just get used to like having everyone stare at you for a little bit, then public speaking i think becomes less scary like i remember getting a public uh, an a plus in public speaking in high school like i got a 100 as my grade um i was just so not scared and i think and obviously it translated to teaching and so like if you can't communicate well if you can't communicate with b- in being genuine and and like get out there and whatever you can't give a presentation you can't connect with people that are going to be valuable for your to keep in your network and in your pocket for the rest of your life. And so whatever you need to do to practice that, if you want to DM me on Twitter and be like, Alexa, I want to practice talking to someone on a zoom camera, I've got your back, but work on it if you need to work on it. Cause it's, it's like the biggest unlock I think to having success in your career, no matter literally what you do.
1: hundred percent agree. Uh, now we have lined up our second course. That one will be one ninety nine ninety nine, 99 and it will be available on Maven in two weeks. <laughs> good <And>, uh, luck. <laughs> no, that's you're you're leading the class uh, in, in all the free time that you have. Last question. So you talked about kind of pivoting over the last four years from teaching to being here and, and now being quoted in Business Insider, which is epic. What would you advise someone who is starting out say you have another teacher who uh, that you meet coming out of BC who moves to boss uh, moves to Austin? And as kind of one of those moments where they're like, what do I, What am I actually supposed to do this? I don't know if this is exactly for me. How would you advise them? Or what would you say is like the first step that they should take when thinking about, I don't know, shifting or, or growing into something else?
0: I mean, the first is to invest in your personal learning. So start consuming as much as you can, learn as much as you can about the thing that you want to transition into. So um, very tactically, one of my best friends has had a very wonky career she's a strong copywriter, but up until a couple of years ago, she didn't have like a single normal job on her resume. She was always kind of freelancing on the side and like, she was somebody's au pair. She did this, she did that. And so the first thing I did was like, a bare minimum, go read like the HubSpot articles, like know the key terms, like tell so that when you're in an interview for the thing that you want one day, like you can at least say like, I've read this, I've Spent the time absorbing it myself. I know I'm going to need to learn like under your leadership, but I took the time to understand these things and I want to learn more about XYZ and, and be able to like use the relevant words to communicate that. Is part one. Two, bad news, but if you're going through a career pivot, I 100% guarantee you will have one shitty job before you get to the one that's slightly better, to the one that's slightly better, to the one that's slightly better, to the one, better, to the one that you're really excited about. I had my six month shitty job where I did this ed tech thing. And I was so bored, literally so bored. Did not fulfill me in any way whatsoever. Uh, probably the most fun time in my life because I clocked in, clocked out. Like there was never any work to do before, or after work. I was like super fit, whatever. So like, if you're in one of those jobs right now where you're really bored or it's not the the right job yet, whatever, get what you can out of that time of your life until you're ready to find the next thing for you. Three, be transparent about what you do and don't know, but your willingness to like grow and learn, like I said. So never lie in an interview and pretend like you know more than you do. It's never gonna work out in your favor. Just be transparent and say like, look, I am literally a sponge. I love learning. I wanna learn out of your tutelage. If you take a shot and like invest in me, I promise I'll make it worth your while. And then four, if there's a particular thing that you want to do, so say it's a copyright or whatever, find those people online who have been doing it for like a year or so and just ask them to set up time with them to like buy them a coffee and and say like, Hey, what do you think I need to invest my time in right now to be able to get myself one of these jobs? Like what helped unlock it for you? Where, where did you apply? What did you do? That's huge. And also when you're doing the application process, like trying to get the actual job, don't just send your resume and CV. Everybody does it. You're a pile of 300 usually if it's a bigger company, if it went on LinkedIn and was sponsored. Many of these companies, they have like AppleTrack or whatever that like ADP that it like crawls your resume for the things that it wants and you're not getting a really personal experience. So if you take the time to send the email to the hiring manager or to the the team lead and and say like, here's some things that I think I could bring to the team or here's some things that I noticed on the site or whatever, like I did. That's when you really... Even if you don't have years under your belt, you can show your worth in a different way. And that's definitely something I would recommend as well.
1: Professor Kilroy, drop in frameworks at the end. Love it. This was incredible. Yay. Perfect episode 10. We got the double digits. Woo-hoo. And we had the original professor on here teaching us what, what life is really about. Alexa, I really appreciate your time what, how should people interact with you? What's, what's the best way?
0: Yeah. So I'm on Twitter. I'm at Alexa Kilroy, K I L R O Y. They're not two L's. It's nonviolent, as I like to say. Um, and then if you're interested in like brand or creative strategy, help or want to talk more and unpack your business, I actually recently signed up to be a mentor on mentor pass. And I like, I think it's literally like, I made it as cheap as I was allowed to make it. It was like, it's like 25 bucks an hour or something to hang out. Um, so if you ever want to do that, I would be super game. Um, I love thinking outside of my own little like hamster wheel of my own projects sometimes. And so I would love to, to meet you, learn more about what's going on and help out however I can. Otherwise you can always just DM me. I'm here.
1: Yeah. Hop on our mentor pass, um, buy her some, uh, buy her lunch. Um, and she will, uh, she'll help you unlock it. This was, uh, Alexa, this was great. Thanks for doing it. People are really lucky to get your honesty, authenticity, and be able to learn from you Thank you. and, you know, sign up for triple whale.
0: Oh yeah. Try triple com, baby. Yeah. All
1: right. <laughs> All right, let's do it again soon.
0: All right. Bye.
1: Bye. Thanks for listening to this episode of ad Creative from pencil. We hope you enjoyed our chat and learned a thing or two that can help you grow your business and think more creatively. If you have someone you think we should interview, just hit me up on Twitter. Also, a small favor if you could please share and review this, we want our guest's amazing insights to reach as much of the community as possible. And your ratings help. Till next time, add some creativity into your life. Thanks.